Jesus because it's not limited to one particular story like we have done most of the time throughout this series. And that's because what we want to engage in tonight is an understanding of how events got to the point that there were people trying to kill Jesus. So what I do, I call this lesson the plot against Jesus. And there are two sides to the plot. There is the side that involves the Jewish leaders and how they got to the point that they wanted to kill Jesus. And then there is the side of Judas Iscariot and how he came to the point that he wanted to betray Jesus. And so we're going to come at this from two different two different sides and hopefully meet in the middle and get an understanding of how we get to this point that that there is this arrangement, this merger of two parties that are uh, uh, disenchanted with Jesus for whatever reason. So let's begin by talking about the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish leaders. Now, you won't find the term Sanhedrin in your Bible. I, I have not come across an English translation that utilizes that term. But it is referenced in Scripture. We'll come back around to that in just a moment. I want you to understand the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish tribunal during the Greek and Roman periods and was composed of 70 members plus the president, who was the high priest. So you have this group of 70 men plus the high priest for a total of 71. They're in charge. Now, we, we have to acknowledge that during this time period in the life of uh, in the first century, particularly in the, in the life of Jesus, Rome's in charge. But Rome has granted some limited authority to the Sanhedrin when it comes to the, the uh, uh, religious practices, the, the laws associated with Judaism. The Sanhedrin, that's where they have authority. They don't have authority over civil affairs in terms of what Rome would have authority over, but they do have authority over spiritual matters in the lives of the Jewish people. And I like to compare them to the Supreme Court. Uh, they're the Supreme Court of Jewish religion. They decided whether or not law was broken by somebody, and they also gave out a sentence to those who were found guilty of breaking the law. So the Sanhedrin is a significant entity in the first century, and they are, uh, they are, for all intents and purposes, for those practicing the Jewish faith, they are the ultimate authority. And so Sanhedrin, you have 70 men plus one, the high priest. In Scripture, as I mentioned a moment ago, you're not going to find the term Sanhedrin. What you will find are a couple of other terms, like the council. This appears a number of times. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. If you looked at Matthew chapter 26 and verse 59, which has to do with uh, the, um, uh, the arrest and, and, and execution of Jesus and that motif, Matthew chapter 26 verse 59 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Mark chapter 14 verse 55 is another version of that. Uh, but you can also look in, in um, Acts chapter 4, we have reference to the council, um, particularly in the context of, of this story when, when the apostles are brought before them. And as they were speaking to the people, we're told in Acts chapter 4 and verse 1, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And then in verse 15, if you follow that story of Acts 4, they're brought before 
the council. And the council puts them out of their uh, chambers for a little bit to have a discussion among themselves. So this terminology of, of the council is a reference to the Sanhedrin, but you'll also see the terminology the rulers, the rulers of the Jews. Some terminology such as that you have in Luke chapter 23 and verse 13 tells us that Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 19 and 20. Um, oh, that's not the one I wanted. John chapter 3 and verse 1. There, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. We've heard of Nicodemus. And then he's given this title, a ruler of the Jews. That's terminology that got associated with the council as well, so, uh, with the uh, Sanhedrin as well. So when you see the terminology of the council or the rulers, you're typically looking at language that is referencing this group of 70 plus 1 that we can call the Sanhedrin. Now, I want you to understand that the Sanhedrin itself, though one body, is made up of three different groups, three different types of people in the Sanhedrin. One, uh, uh, and you will see this in Scripture in passages like Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. You have all three groups mentioned there, and I want to pull that up and read it to you just so you get the idea. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. From that time Jesus began... Oh, I've got the wrong... Pa- Am I reading that correctly? 16:21. Oh, yeah. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and scribes. Three groups. And I've listed a bunch of verses there that mention all three groups. Those are the three groups that comprise the Sanhedrin. You have first the chief priests. Now, when we are talking about the chief priests, you know there is a high priest he would be included in this definition of the chief priest. But it would also include anyone who had been a high priest before. You have a unique situation, actually, at the time of Jesus, where you have two guys who kind of wear the title high priest. Here's what's interesting. Under Mosaic law, high priest is an appointment for life. But Rome comes into the picture, and they like to have somebody in charge of the Jews who they get along with. And so Rome has at times removed somebody from a high priestly office and, and, and had somebody else appointed. So in the time of Jesus, you've got Annas and Caiaphas both identified as high priests because one of them had been replaced under Rome's rule. So uh, anybody that, that was high priest or had been a high priest would be considered a chief priest. But this would also include uh, uh, members of the priesthood that, that weren't in the high priestly position, members of the priesthood, as well as members of the, the high priest's household. And so this became a group uh, that you would associate with priestly aristocracy. These guys are, have this inherited position, and so they, they make up one segment of the Sanhedrin. A second group that gets mentioned is the elders. Now, these guys are not priests. These guys are not um, from the tribe of Levi, descending from Aaron or anything like that. The elders were the tribal and family heads of the people. 
These, you can go back into the Old Testament and you can read frequently about the elders of the people. These are the individuals who lead their clans, who, who lead um, their, their families, and who lead their tribes. These are the elder statement, statesmen, if you will. I refer to them as the secular nobility. I, well, I, let me rephrase that. I got this from somebody else, but they are referred to as the secular nobility. These guys are in positions of power within uh, the, the civic context of their society. The third group is called the scribes. Now, in the Bible, sometimes the scribes are referred to as teachers of the law or even lawyers. That's because they were the legal experts of the day. And when I say legal experts, I don't mean in, in the same way that we have attorneys today. Legal experts in terms of Mosaic law. These are the guys who are learned in Mosaic law. Their profession, their occupation was to study and interpret the law. Their uh, distinctive function and their distinctive office really comes into play in the Old Testament with Ezra. Ezra sets himself, uh, sets himself to the task of teaching the law to those exiles who returned. And uh, uh, he became kind of the, the figurehead of what a scribe would be. By New Testament times, this group of people known as scribes had, to quote one author, undisputed sway as the recognized experts of the law and revered representatives of Judaism. These are the guys who know the Old Testament better than everybody else. So when you look at the Sanhedrin, you have these, these three groups. You have this priestly aristocracy, these guys who are in these appointed positions uh, who, who uh, serve at the temple. Then you have your uh, secular nobility, your leaders of families, clans, and tribes. And then you have your legal experts in terms of the scribes. So you have three different groups within the Sanhedrin. The other thing that's interesting about the Sanhedrin is that you have two different parties within it. Now, we understand the concept of parties. We live in a country that has two political parties, two, let me rephrase that, two primary political parties. We do have more than two political parties, but, but two that are the, uh, the primary ones. In that day and age, you do have two political slash religious parties. Uh, because of the way Mosaic Law was designed, politics and religion were a lot more intertwined in this time period than they are today under our separation of church and state mentality. But in that time, you had two parties represented within the Sanhedrin. You're familiar with both of them. You've heard of both of them. But it helps us to put it in context like this, that we had three different groups of people, priests, elders, and scribes. I went blank. Then you have two parties that most of these people fell into. The first being the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the popular party of the middle class, as one author said, even though there probably wasn't much of a middle class back then. But they are the popular party of the people because they're the ones who held themselves to high standards of purity, particularly on such matters as Sabbath observance or ritual cleanliness and the exact time of feasts and stuff like that. They treated non-observant Jews as Gentiles. They weren't afraid to 
criticize someone's uh, religious failings, that sort of thing. Um, and they, they were um, willing to um, ostracize those who weren't living up to the standards of Mosaic law. So these guys were the, 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 the uh, hardcore um, faithful attendees of the religion in the eyes of the people. These guys were the devout, observant, conservative believers of their day. Now, Jesus will routinely point out the hypocrisy of this group. Jesus is not easy on this group. Just read Matthew chapter 23. And, and, and Jesus has a lot of criticism for them. But in the eyes of the people, this was the group that was the most spiritual. Now, one thing you'll notice if you journey through the Gospels is that Pharisees are frequently associated with the scribes. You will frequently see Pharisees and scribes mentioned together in, in one verse. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus is speaking. And he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is one of his, his great criticisms of them, but he lumps them together because Pharisees and scribes were so well associated with each other. But they are not one and the same thing. You see, a, a Pharisee is an affiliation with a particular perspective of Scripture. A scribe is an actual role, an actual position, an actual trained occupation, you could say. And so you can be a Pharisee and a scribe, but you can also be a Pharisee and not a scribe. And you can be a scribe and not a Pharisee. But because the, the Pharisees were so intent on keeping the law, many of the scribes came, were aligned with the Pharisees because the scribes' job was to know the law. And so you have a lot of overlap between those two in Scripture, and I've provided a lot of biblical references there. So this was the group. The Pharisees were the party that was popular with the people. They believed in being distinct and separate from those who were not practicing the faith the way they should be, and they were the ones who were prominent among the scribes. Now, since you've seen who the first party is, you know who the second one is. The second party that would be present in the Sanhedrin is known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a religious sect that became leaders in the Hellenizing movement of the day. They became the, the party that was favorable to the Roman government. They were more interested in maintaining political status quo than in religious purity. So they were more popular with Rome. See, Sadducees were, as one author said, blatant collaboration, collaborationists. That's because they were willing to go along with Greek culture in a lot of ways. The reason that they would be willing to collaborate with culture so easily probably has something to do with some of their theology. Because Scripture does tell us some theological differences between Pharisees and Sadducees. It's over in Acts chapter 23. Does anybody remember what some of those theological differences are? Belief or not in the resurrection. Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The resurrection, Sadducees did not. Now, how might that 
make them more willing to acclimate to Greek culture. Think about it. If you don't believe there's an afterlife, if you don't believe that there's going to be a resurrection, then what does it matter what you do today? So from a Sadducee standpoint, if you don't believe that, that there's a second life, that there is, is something after this, there's no reason not to go along with culture a little bit. Because there's no, there's no ultimate consequence, is there? At least that's one theory out there. So Acts chapter 23, particularly in verse 6, Paul utilized his knowledge of the Pharisees and Sadducees as he's standing before the Sanhedrin. And he pits the two against each other. It's Acts 23, verse 6. He says, uh, it says that now when Paul perceived that one part of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He recognized that in the Sanhedrin there were two different parties with two different ideologies and two different theologies, and he used that in the moment to pit them against each other. So you have the Sadducees here. They're the party that's popular with Rome, and they're the ones with a collaborative ideology with culture. But here's the catch. They're also the party that is prominent among the priests. Remember, we've got three groups in the Sanhedrin. The priests, the elders, and the scribes. The Pharisees are most associated with the scribes. The Sadducees are most associated with the priests. It's in Acts chapter 5 and verse 17 where this association between the, Sad, the Sadducees and the, the chief priests is evident. Because we're told in Acts chapter 5 and verse 17 that the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. There's a, there's a, a, a strong bond between the high priest and the Sadducees. And according to um, uh, the, the things that I read, the Sadducees made up most of the chief priest positions. And so uh, in Jesus' day, the Sadducees were the party in power because they had the high priest. Just something for us to recognize here as we consider these groups that are in the Sanhedrin and these parties that are in the Sanhedrin. And so you have a lot going on within this group of 70 plus 1. And you have a lot of variation, a lot of differences, a lot of conflicting views, that sort of thing. And this is going to be the group that really goes after Jesus to kill him. Now, I want us to understand there's been many attempts on Jesus' life up until this point where we are. Last week, we studied the resurrection of Lazarus. And we're going to pick up where that story left off in just a moment in John chapter 11. But up to this point, we've had several attempts on Jesus' life. The people of Nazareth attempted to throw him down the cliff after he, he taught in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, but he managed to escape. According to Matthew 12 and Mark 3, after Jesus healed a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath day in a synagogue, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. 
That's one of our earliest references to, to those among the groups we just talked about trying to plot against Jesus. And then we can read in John chapter 5 how after Jesus healed a man at the Bethesda pool on the Sabbath day and said, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working, thereby saying that and creating a correlation between him and, and the father, which the, these religious leaders often associate with blasphemy. After he said that and, and performed that miracle on the Sabbath day again, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, as John chapter 5 and verse 18 said. And then according to a report from some Pharisees in Luke chapter 13 and verse 31, Herod was trying to kill Jesus, or at least plotting to kill Jesus. And then if you go to John chapter 7, we read that we're told that Jesus was ministering in Galilee for an extended period of time in an, in an intentional attempt to avoid Jerusalem because the Jews the, from Judea were waiting to take his life during the Feast of Tabernacles. You read about that throughout John chapter 7. And then Jesus, Jesus does go down to the feast, and there is an attempt to seize him, which he thwarts. And then if you go to John chapter 10, which is one chapter before the raising of Lazarus, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication, and the Jews attempted to stone him for claiming to be God in verse 31 of that chapter. And they later attempted to seize him in the 39th verse of that chapter, but he escaped. There have been numerous attempts to capture Jesus or to kill him up to this point. And that brings us to John chapter 11, the, the raising of Lazarus, and in particular, the aftermath of the raising of Lazarus. So look at John 11 with me, and let's start in the 45th verse, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. I made reference to this last week at the close of our lesson, but I want us to read this section again tonight. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from here, went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come for the to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know 
so that they might arrest him. So in the aftermath of Lazarus' resurrection, we have the Sanhedrin, the council, as the text says, getting together, recognizing that Jesus is a threat to them. How was Jesus a threat to the Sanhedrin? Mike? That, that is absolutely part of it. Jesus is attracting more followers day by day. He's not up there in Galilee, away from the big city of Jerusalem. He's not up there just some country bumpkin preacher who's got a few people following him. He's in the big time, and people are flocking to him, which means they're not following the Sanhedrin. He's a threat to their position of authority. But there was another concern specifically stated in verse uh, 48 of John 11. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Is there concern? Is the Sanhedrin's concern for souls? Or for themselves? For themselves. They love their power. And they're not only concerned that the people won't follow them, but they're concerned that if the people are revolting in some fashion, or the people are in an uprising of some fashion, if the people are going and following Jesus, Rome's going to step in and say, you're not doing your job, get out of here. It is complete self-interest and self-preservation running through the minds of these people who are supposed to be leading the Jews spiritually. These are the bad shepherds in comparison to Jesus, the good shepherd. And so as we look at this, the Sanhedrin's convening so that they can address the growing popularity of Jesus. And they're facing a dilemma because the many miraculous signs that Jesus has performed, particularly with Lazarus in Bethany, which is just two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem, these miracles were causing large numbers of the Jewish people to believe in him as the Messiah. If this continued and the majority of the people gave their allegiance to him, it would certainly come to the notice of the Roman governor and be seen as a threat to the imperial rule of Rome in Judea. This would invite a Roman crackdown, and the Romans would remove those members of the Sanhedrin from their office, and they would lose their privileged position in regards to the temple and the people. For the record, I was quoting from an author on all that. So Caiaphas, who is high priest, proposed a solution, and that is the elimination of Jesus. And his argument is simply this, the ends justify the means. That's his argument. That's the whole basis of his argument. The ends justify the means. Because if you look at what he said, it is better that one man should die than that the whole nation should perish. The ends justify 
the means. So the Sanhedrin resolves to put Jesus to death. And they start looking for an opportunity to do so. If you look at verse 57 of John 11, you'll notice that they gave orders to the people. If you see Jesus, if you know where he's at, tell us so we can arrest him. So the Sanhedrin's contribution to this plot is based on selfish interests. The Sanhedrin's reason for wanting to kill Jesus is nothing more than self-preservation, nothing more than I want to retain power, nothing more, nothing more than selfishness and pride. But they're only one part of the equation. Because as we started this, I I, I talked about all the times that attempts on Jesus' life have happened before. They can't really get to Jesus because the people, they're afraid of the people. They're afraid. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 3 through 5 says that the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They're afraid of how the people react to them arresting Jesus because the people are so enamored with Jesus at this point. So they need some help to make this happen. They need an insider. And that's where this story of the plot really shifts to a guy named Judas. Now, let's talk about Judas for a second. I haven't spent much time talking about individual characters in this study, but Judas is worth our time. I want you to to consider for a moment, I want you to think about Judas, but not in terms of what we know now. See, when you hear the name Judas, I mean, nobody names their kid Judas. Brendan, Laura, I'm throwing out a suggestion. Judas. Nobody names her kid Judas. It's like nobody names her kid um, Benedict Arnold either. But Judas, we always look at him through the lens of what we know at the end of the story. Think about this. Judas was selected just like every other apostle. And pay attention to what is said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 about this selection process. We're told that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and continued in prayer all night. Have you ever had an all-night prayer? I doubt it. Let me ask you this. What's your longest prayer? What's your longest prayer by minutes? You, you, probably, you probably didn't sit there with a the stopwatch and count it out, but can you take a guess? Was it, did you go an hour? Did you go 30 minutes? 20, 15, 10, 5? What's your longest prayer? Because Jesus's was an all-night prayer, and it was a prayer when he was selecting apostles. Jesus didn't do one of these short two-minute prayers when it came time to choose apostles. He spent an entire night 
deliberating and talking to God about that selection. At least that's what Luke chapter, Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. And think about this. It's easy for us to imagine that Jesus only had these 12 guys. Jesus did not just have these 12 guys. Jesus had other men and even women around him. We can read about some of the women that followed him. We can read in Acts chapter 1 when it's time to replace Judas. They have a couple of options they throw out there, and they mention the fact that these guys had been with them since the beginning. These 12 were not the only ones following Jesus when he chose apostles. But after spending all night praying, Jesus whittled it down to 12. And one of those 12 is Judas, Judas Iscariot. We need to respect the fact that there was something about Judas that made him worthy to be an apostle at the very beginning. There was something about him that made him fit within that group of guys like Peter, James, and John. Judas was chosen just like all of those guys by Jesus after a night-long prayer. And not only that, Judas was appointed to the only executive position among the apostles that we're aware of. According to John chapter 12 and verse 6, and we're going to get to John 12 in just a minute, Judas was put in charge of the money bag, which means that he was essentially the group's treasurer. Now, I found that interesting because among that group of 12, there is a professional financial officer named Matthew who was a tax collector. Now, granted, Matthew being a tax collector, they probably had their um, stereotypes associated with him. I'm imagining that those other apostles would not have trusted Matthew with the money bag because he was a tax collector. And tax collectors were known for not being ethical with money. So maybe it was intentional that Matthew was not the tax collector but nobody suspected that Judas was going to be a problem with the money bags. The fact that Judas was chosen for this position is actually an indication to us that he was at least trusted and respected by the group. We don't even know if Jesus is the one who appointed him to the money bag responsibility. It may have been a group decision. And the fact that he was in charge of the money may indicate that he was even a recognized leader within the group to some degree. My point is simply this. When, you, when we look at Judas, we need to, to, to start by thinking about him in terms of how he started. Because he was just like the rest of them. He didn't start out as a betrayer. He wasn't a secret spy planted among the apostles by Satan. I believe Judas started his apostolic career with the right intentions, with the right purpose, with the right heart. He was chosen by Jesus, and he was appointed to an executive position. And I think those things tell us something was good about Judas in the beginning. And I think this also highlights that fact, that not one of the apostles was suspicious of Judas particularly that night at the Last Supper. According to John chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, Jesus announced that one of you will betray me. 
And we're told that the disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. Uncertain. Not one of them, not one of them goes, oh, that guy, that's got to be Judas. Not one of them thought to themselves, I, I bet you it's Judas. Not one of them was suspicious of Judas. In fact, Matthew indicates that, that each of the apostles began to say to Jesus one after another, Is it I, Lord? In other words, when the apostles heard that there was a traitor in their midst, not a single one of them immediately thought, it's got to be Judas. They asked, is it me, before they asked, is it Judas? Even when Jesus gave specific indicators that identified Judas as the betrayer, the other apostles didn't connect the dots. John chapter 13, verse 26 and 27, after being asked by John who would betray him, Jesus said, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And then he proceeded to give the morsel to Judas and told him what you're going to do, do quickly. But that indicator was lost on the apostles. Because a few verses, or in the next two verses, verse 28 and 29 of John 13, John says this, No one at the table knew why he said this to Judas. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. There was absolutely no suspicion or question or raised eyebrows about Judas. Even after Jesus gave multiple clues about who the traitor would be, the disciples didn't get it because they weren't suspicious of Judas. That tells us that Judas, throughout the career of Jesus, throughout his ministry, was just as devoted of a disciple as every other disciple. Now, the one last thing I want to mention about Judas is his signifying, his distinguishing moniker, Iscariot. He's always Judas Iscariot, isn't he? We know him as Judas Iscariot, and it's important to not acknowledge that because the second part of his name, though not his last name per se, it is a descriptive term used to distinguish him from other Judases in the Bible. Judas was a popular first century name. There is another apostle named Judas. There were two Judases among the apostles. You can see that if you look at Luke 6 and Acts 1. But apparently the other Judas also went by the name Thaddeus, according to Matthew chapter 10 and Mark chapter 3. It's interesting because if you look at John chapter 14 and verse 22, there's reference to this second Judas. And in parentheses, the text specifically says, Judas, parentheses, not Iscariot, wants to make sure we don't mix this up. So there's a second Judas among the apostles. But even one of Jesus' brothers was named Judas, according to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, and Mark chapter 6, and verse 3. In Acts chapter 5, there's reference to an insurrection who was named Judas. The owner of the house stayed while he was blind was named Judas, according to Acts chapter 9 and verse 11. One of the representatives of the church in Antioch to the meeting with the elders in Jerusalem about the issue of Gentile circumcision was named Judas, according to Acts chapter 15. There's a lot of first century Judases. And so the name Iscariot became that distinguishing 
moniker for this Judas. Now, it should be noted that Iscariot was also a term associated with Judas's father. In John chapter 6 and verse 71, in, in John chapter 13, verse 26, he is referred to as Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. So that Iscariot name came down from his father. But what does Iscariot mean? There have been several options proposed over the years, but there's two that seem to be the most popular, and I don't know which one is the correct one, but both of them are interesting for various reasons. Iscariot could be a reference to his hometown. The word Iscariot may mean man of Kirioth. The uh, is part of the word meaning man, and then the Kariot part of the word meaning Kirioth. You can read about the city of Kerioth in Joshua chapter 15 and verse 25. It was a town belonging to the tribe of Judah after the conquest of the promised land. It alternately became known as Hazor. But the term Kerioth can also be a common noun referring to a city in general. And so that means that that reference in Joshua chapter 15 verse 25 to Kerioth Hezron could simply mean the city of Hezron. And so Judas Iscariot could actually mean man of the city, which some scholars have used to argue that he was, must have been a resident of Jerusalem because that was the city. Now, why would that matter? If Judas was from the town of Kirioth, or if he was just from the Jerusalem, the man of the city, then he would have been from Judah. And he would have been the only apostle that we're aware of that was not from Galilee. That would effectively make him an outsider to the rest of the group, which was made up entirely of Galileans. What's interesting, though, is that none of the other apostles are identified by their place of origin, at least in their name. What I mean is we know from Scripture that Peter and Andrew resided in Capernaum, Mark chapter 1, that Philip was from Bethsaida, according to John chapter 1 and John chapter 12, and that Nathaniel, who is believed to be Bartholomew in the apostolic lists, was from Cana, according to John chapter 21. So we know where some of these guys are from, but their names don't usually associate their hometown or do not mention their hometown. And, and so Judas would be unique if his name with its surname has to do with where he's from. But that's one possibility for the meaning of Iscariot. The other could be a reference to an involvement of he and his father in a first century political organization that opposed Roman occupation through terroristic activities. Let me explain what I mean. Iscariot, as some scholars have pointed out, may be a Semitic form of Sicarius. A Sicarius is a dagger bearer or assassin. In Palestine during the lifetime of Jesus, the Sicarii were extremely zealous Jewish nationalists who carried daggers under their cloaks so that they could take advantage of every opportunity to kill Romans or Roman collaborators. 
In other words, this group was so anti-Rome that they prepared for and resorted to terroristic activities to achieve their agenda of overthrowing Rome. So, if Iscariot is a reference to Judas being a part of the Sicarii, it would be an indicator of his political leanings. And it's not unusual for one of Jesus' disciples to be identified based on political leanings. Because we have one apostle who's consistently referred to as Simon the what? Zealot. The Zealots were a Jewish patriotic party started in the time of Quirinius to resist Roman aggression. According to Josephus, the Zealots resorted to violence and assassination in their hatred of the Romans as well. And their fanatical violence eventually provoked the Roman war that took place in Palestine. So Iscariot could possibly be a reference to political leanings that Judas had, much like Simon the Zealot. And this was something that I found fascinating, that is complete subject, it's completely subjective. It's, it's completely speculative. But it's interesting, if you look at the apostolic lists in the Gospels, Simon the Zealot immediately preceded Judas Iscariot in Matthew and Mark's listing of the apostles. And many scholars believe that Matthew's account of that list ordered the apostles based on the couplings in which Jesus paired them before sending them out on an evangelistic campaign. Jesus called the, the twelve together and sent them out two by two. And many believe that Matthew's list identifies the pairings that they were sent out in. It's believed that because you have pairings like brothers, Peter and Andrew and James and John. You have friends paired together like Philip and Bartholomew who is also known as Nathaniel. And you have the potential of some like-minded disciples paired together if you have Simon the Zealot and Judas the Assassin paired together. Again, I'm not trying to say that this is what Iscariot meant. It's just one of the possibilities of what Iscariot meant. And here's why this one would matter. Because if it is true that Judas was associated with this kind of political leaning, then he would have brought some extreme political expectations of the Messiah to his discipleship. And so with that kind of context in place, I want us to think about Judas's involvement in the plot to kill Jesus. Because at some point, Judas went from being this dedicated apostle to being this plotter. Why? Well, one reason might be because he expected Jesus to overthrow Rome. This would lend itself to that idea of, 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 being, of Iscariot referring to an assassin. Because if Iscariot is a reference to Judas' involvement in a terroristic political group, known for assassinating Roman supporters, then he would have brought some, ex, some serious ex militant expectations of the Messiah. And here's the thing. 
the entire group of apostles collectively expected Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 through uh, uh, 23. After Peter's great confession, we're told that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Why did Peter criticize Jesus here? Because Peter and the other disciples, they expected Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom And if Jesus turned himself in for the purpose of being executed by the authorities, then in Peter's mind, that would undermine the establishment of the kingdom. And Jesus responded to Peter's rebuke by telling him, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, you're setting your mind on the things of men. And that statement indicated that Peter's expectation of the kingdom was not in line with God's plan for the kingdom. It's just one of the ways we see that the apostles expected a different kind of kingdom than what Jesus was instituting. You can also see this in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 40, where James and John asked Jesus for a favor. They asked him to grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. In other words, they wanted to flank Jesus in his earthly throne room. And Jesus responded to their request saying, You do not know what you are asking. He then went on to say that sitting at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus effectively pointed out that their request was born out of ignorance, that they did not understand the kingdom. But the one that gets me the most is in the book of Acts. Chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. This is after Jesus' death burial, and resurrection. And the disciples still struggled with their kingdom expectations even after the resurrection. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is telling them, in effect, you're misunderstanding the kingdom, but you're going to receive power from the Spirit. And he's not saying this to them directly, but that's when the kingdom is established. See, that every one of those disciples, every one of those disciples struggled with their expectation of the kingdom. I wonder if that affected Judas. If Judas... turned on Jesus when he realized that Jesus was not going to overthrow Rome, that Jesus was not going to set up an earthly kingdom, if he turned on Jesus because his expectation of what the kingdom's supposed to be was not going to be met 
by Jesus. As one author said, maybe he betrayed Jesus because he could no longer follow a teacher who was not prepared to lead a war because he was so militant himself. Again, there's conjecture in that. There's pondering in that. There's not a statement in Scripture that says, this is why Judas betrayed Jesus. But I can't help but wonder that. Now, I know we only have a couple minutes left, five minutes or so. Let me share this other thought about Judas. Maybe the other issue or the the other possibility doesn't have to do with overthrowing Rome, but it does still have that kingdom issue. Maybe Judas expected a large financial gain when Jesus established his kingdom, still in that motif and in that mindset about an earthly kingdom. And this, I wonder, because of John chapter 12. This is picking up right where we left off in John 11. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Many therefore took a pound, oh, excuse me, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put in it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Right here, we're given a glimpse into Judas that we're not given anywhere else. That at this point in his career... He's now engaging in fraudulent financial behavior. I wonder if he's reached a point here at John chapter 12 where he's, become a, he's come to the realization that Jesus is not going to build the kingdom that they want or that they expect, I should say, which means Jesus is not going to sit on a throne and make Judas his kingdom's treasurer. And so Judas is now looking for a way to financially benefit. At this point, it's skimming off the top of the money bag. But now Jesus is criticizing him, and and Jesus isn't worried about how much money they could have got out of that ointment. And he's starting to go, okay, I've got to have a better financial plan now. See, it's interesting to me, when you start looking at every account of Judas's arrangement with the Sanhedrin. Every one of them are about the money. In each account, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, in each account, Judas went to the chief priests asking about what they would give him to betray Jesus. In each account, he's the one initiating a conversation about money for the betrayal. Something about the financial aspect of this is appealing to Judas. Maybe it's because he's come to the conclusion that Jesus is not going to set up a kingdom that's going to be financially beneficial for him. I do not know the exact reason for why Judas betrayed Jesus, but I do think Scripture drops some clues for us. And I think it's worth 
taking a look at those little clues and trying to understand Judas a little bit. And for me, I think the ultimate thing is Judas became disenchanted with Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. I think that's at the core. That like the other apostles, he misunderstood the whole kingdom thing, but he couldn't handle it and he wouldn't wait on it. See, there's an extraordinary difference between Peter and Judas, even though they both do something horrible the night of Jesus' death. Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. Both men sin against Jesus in in an extraordinary way that night, and both men walk away from their sin in tears. But Peter rebounds. Judas doesn't. And it makes me wonder, is it because Judas couldn't accept the kingdom that Jesus was trying to establish? Again, I don't know the answers, but I do like to share these thoughts. And I hope this has given you a glimpse into what's coordinating between these two groups, the Sanhedrin and Judas, as they enter into these negotiations in Matthew 26. Mark 14, and Luke 22. That brings us to the end of our time. Let me say a quick prayer before we dismiss this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our opportunity to study your word. We are grateful for our gathering and for being among each other. And we're grateful for the life of your Son. Help us to ever appreciate it more and help us to ever emulate it more. We love you, Lord, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.